Exodus 2, 11 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have been known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, he asked his daughters. Why did you leave him, invite him to have something to eat? Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning. Beautiful morning, yeah? Did we catch the sunrise this morning? I always catch the sunrise on Sunday mornings. Um, it was gorgeous, lovely. Uh, happy MLK weekend. It looks like some people are celebrating by being out of town potentially. Um, but this is, you know, obviously a weekend every year that our nation stops and remembers uh, this man who uh, was far from perfect, perfect like any of us, but who had this pretty amazing vision uh, for our country. Uh, I think always on, on tomorrow of his I have a dream speech, my favorite line is, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged, you guys know how this goes, by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That is a beautiful vision uh, for a society. A vision that continues to uh, be threatened on, I'd say, all sides of the political spectrum these days. Uh, and yet here we are as, as followers of Jesus gathering to remember this day, and we gather in a church. Uh, we have our own um, differences. We don't have certain kinds of diversity in this room too much today, but um, plenty of differences, and yet we get to gather and worship one Lord, and we get to follow the vision, not just of MLK, but of, of the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers that we are now one in Christ, right? This is Galatians 3. Here. In the community of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek. 
slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did on the cross of, of reconciling us to God and reconciling us to one another. And so here we are, 2022, trying to live out that unity in the midst of a very disunified world. But we get to come here every Sunday. We get to sing the same songs together. We get to remind ourselves that um, what is most important about us is what unites us, and that is our identity in Christ. So always good to remember this weekend and to be together and worship uh, in unity today. And if you missed last week, we're starting this series on another man, another amazing leader, uh, Moses, who also was not a perfect guy, but uh, whom God used in some pretty amazing ways. And uh, last week, we looked at the backstory of Moses in chapters 1 and the first half of chapter 2. And I drew our attention to these five women who we don't tend to think about all that much, certainly not as much as Moses, but each of these women in their own ways made these very courageous and faithful decisions in the midst of hard circumstances that actually allowed Moses to even be alive. And so what I want to do today now is is look at, um, I'll call it the early life of Moses. We'll find out it wasn't that early when you realize how old he was by the end of this passage. But um, his early moments, his early life, and this is all we get of his early days. And um, what I want to do today is just talk about the shaping of this leader. I want to talk about the background events that Lynn just read that I believe shaped Moses into the man that he became, into the kind of person God wanted him to be so that he could be uh, the leader that God wanted. And um, I see Moses, as, as I read this chapter, as a remarkable guy, just naturally remarkable guy, but there was some work to be done in him. And God wanted to do some work in shaping him. And it's so typical, I think, his story of the way that God shapes us, shapes his people so that they can do the work um, that, that God has for them. So uh, what I want to do is I just want to walk through the story together, uh, and then I want to just step back and, and make a couple comments on how I see God shaping Moses through these examples, okay, through these stories. So let's just walk through this story, and let me just make just two brief comments before I, like, walk us through. First one is, I'll just tell you this, I love Hebrew narrative. Like, I geek out on Hebrew narrative, Okay. It's so interesting, these Old Testament stories, um, there's all these, it it doesn't come through in English, and I don't really know Hebrew, so I'm not claiming to know Hebrew, but I have the tools to know enough, um, which is really dangerous. (laughs) I know enough to do a lot of damage. No, but um, there's, what doesn't come through in English, there's all these word plays, um, there's lots of ambiguity in the language, and the language is just so compact. You'll get like two sentences that describe an entire event, right? And you're left to try to, like, imagine the scene for yourself, try to fill in the details. And that's, I think, some of the fun of it. But these very compact, really interesting, cool stories. And what's so interesting is often the narrator doesn't tell you how they feel about what they're narrating. They just give you an event, and you're left, am I supposed to feel good about that? Am I supposed to feel, how am I supposed to feel about that? And so Hebrew narrative invites all of this exploration among God's people, and and this passage is certainly no different. So I just, I love it. And then the other thing is, I'll just say, I kind of alluded to this, but just my general sense of Moses as a guy moving into this chapter, a couple things that I I see. One, he seems like he's a passionate man. Uh, He cares about justice. He seems to care about the vulnerable. Um, There's a lot in his heart that is to his credit, 
Something else that strikes me is I think he's a pretty powerful guy. I think he's probably a physically impressive guy. I never really thought through this, but you know, back in verse 2 of chapter 2, he's born, and it says his mom realized he was no ordinary child, okay? So when a kid's born, I'm assuming she didn't see like there's an intellect that he's going to be a great computer technician or something like that, right? Like I assume there's something physically um, impressive about him. I'll bet he's a strong guy. He is going to strike down an Egyptian slave master and kill him. He's going to scare off a group of shepherds at a well. So I think he's a, he's a passionate guy, and, um, and he's a powerful guy just in his flesh, in his, who he, in his makeup. And I, as I see it, those are both, we'll find out, those are both assets, but they're also liabilities. And so I see God kind of shaping this really naturally passionate, powerful man, but having to do some work in shaping him so that he can be the kind of vessel that God can use. So, okay, let's just jump in. Um, Fascinating uh, narrative here. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, anybody know how old Moses is in this verse? 40 years old, okay? So if you read Acts 7, um, you have the speech of Stephen, and he kind of rehearses uh, Israel's history, and he talks a lot about Moses. And this is where we get how old Moses was. So he's 40 years old at this point, okay? So we don't know when he entered into Pharaoh's household. Let's say it was sometime between the ages of 5 and 10. So he's, he's grown up in Pharaoh's home, right, uh, for 30-plus years. Um, but what we see here is it says he went out to where his own people were, so even after those 30 years, he has not lost a sense of his Jewish identity, his Jewish roots. He may still be connected, you know, with his brothers and sisters and his mom and dad. We just don't know. But he still has a sense of being a Hebrew living in Egypt. So he goes out to where his own people are, and it says, and he watched them at their hard labor. That word watched is like to inspect. He's, he's really looking into it. He's really curious, and he's, he's, he wants to see what is this like for my fellow uh, Hebrews. So I picture him going out, though he's, he's got to be dressed like, a, like an Egyptian prince or at least Egyptian high class, right? I mean, he, he grows up in Pharaoh's household. So he goes out to the fields, uh, and he sees them. Uh, verse 11 um, the second half, verse 11, he saw an Egyptian beating Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay, here's one of those moments where the narrator doesn't tell us, how should I feel about that? Right, after chapter one, I might be cheering Moses on after centuries of oppression and forced labor. Am I supposed to feel good about what just happened? Am I supposed to feel like Moses, that was probably not the best move, right? He doesn't actually tell us. Um, But what is clear is Moses sees something that is, in fact, horrific. He sees a great injustice. He sees oppression. He sees one of his own people being beaten. And I would argue his heart is moved in that moment the way his heart ought to be moved, with anger, with with a desire to protect the vulnerable, right, with indignation, what we would, in our kind of language today, we would call with, with righteous anger, right? He's moved with righteous anger. Um, verse 12 says, looking this way and that and seeing no one. Now, I'll bet all of us read that and we think he's going to see if he's going to get caught, right? 
that's very well what might be happening, but something else might be happening there. He actually might be looking this way and that, asking the question, is any gonna, anybody going to step in and do something about this? Is anybody going to intervene? Okay? The reason that's possible is because in Isaiah, let me see if I've got this, um, there's almost exact language used of God. Look at this. Yahweh looked, he's looking at all the injustice, and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. That's the phrase in our passage. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm achieved salvation for him. Okay? Possible that's what's going on in Moses. Is is somebody going to do something about this? No? Well, then I'm going to step in and do something about this. But this could be his, his first real exposure to, to oppression and injustice. And he responds the way that I think a lot of us do. Like if we go on a, a mission trip, right? You go to like a, a, a developing country or you go to these places and you see poverty or you see injustice. Really like for the, you're really exposed to something for the first time and, and something wells up in you. You're like, we, get the, we need to change this. this need, you know, it's that kind of that just, yes, let's do something. And that wells up in Moses and, um, and he does something about it. And he uses his, well, I think his raw strength. He's a strong guy. He strikes this guy down. We don't know if he tried to kill him or if he just hit him and he ended up killing him. Um, but whatever happened, he, he you know, tries to hide it and buries it in the sand. So in my mind, I think he's moved in an appropriate way, <laughs> but he chooses to solve the problem in his own power, in his own flesh, which was not the, the right move, right? All right, so that's scene one. Scene two, verse 13. The next day... He went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? So um, now Moses learns, actually the situation is a little more complex than you thought, right? Moses kind of saying, good guys, bad guys, right? Good guys, Hebrews, bad guys, Egyptians. Uh, the next day he goes out and he sees two good guys and there's, there's violence going between them. And so he steps in again, he intervenes as maybe he should. And uh, he gets a response that I don't think he was expecting, right? Look at verse 14. The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And I would argue that is the question of the chapter. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Answer, Moses. Moses made Moses ruler and judge, right? Strong Moses, passionate Moses, Moses the reformer. Moses made Moses ruler and judge. I think he was caught off guard by that question. Uh, And then the guy says, are you going to kill me too, right? Uh, Then Moses was afraid and thought, what what I did must have become known, you think, Moses? Uh, Pharaoh hears about it, right, and tries to kill him. So Moses flees to Midian, right? He finds out. Um, that his life is in danger, and he goes off to live in Midian. Uh, now, let me show you where we think Midian was. So um, you've got the top left, you've got the, the Nile Delta, right, going into the Mediterranean Sea in Egypt, and this is Moses' journey. I know that it's actually taken him back from Midian, but bottom right is where we think Midian is. This is the Sinai Peninsula area uh, and all of that, that area. Um, so what Moses does is actually he, he goes um, into the very wilderness that Israel will go into the wilderness years later. He's in that really exact same place. So this gives you a sense of where we think maybe he was. Again, the Israelites will kind of follow this same basic path uh, when he brings them out of Egypt. 
So uh, scene three, final scene of the, of the passage. So verse 16, gosh, see, I love, I love Hebrew narrative. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. Uh, and then we find out in verse 18, the priest's name is Ruel, okay? Chapter three, he'll be called Jethro, so apparently he has a couple names. I'm wondering, uh, Ruel means friend of God, okay? What is a priest with the name of friend of God doing in the Midian wilderness? I have no idea. This great mystery. I love it. But here's this mysterious figure. It reminds me of like Melchizedek in in Genesis 14, this guy who's the king of Salem who is also a priest and blesses Abraham. But we don't know what God is up to in a priest named Ruel in the Midianite wilderness, but he's got seven daughters, and uh, they come to the well to draw water. Um, So if you're used to reading biblical narrative, you'll know that wells in Scripture are almost always places where future spouses meet, okay? It's just how it is. Genesis 24, Isaac's servant travels, goes and meets Rebekah at a well, ends up, you know, betrothing her to, to Isaac. Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Here we have Moses meeting his future wife at a well. And then, of course, we have John 4, where you have Jesus and a Samaritan woman meeting at a well, a woman who has happened to have five husbands desperately searching for the one man who, you know, can make her life work. And so there's all these undercurrents in all of those stories of what what is going on there. So meeting at a well, you should be thinking a marriage is about to happen. Uh, You've got some shepherds, and um, (laughs) they're not very nice shepherds. Verse 17, some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flocks. So again, you see this guy, Moses, he's got, a, he's got a passion for justice. He cares for the vulnerable. He's a strong guy. He chases away uh, a group of, we don't know how many shepherds. Uh, this time he doesn't try to kill them. That's a good, you know, good growth. And, um, and he gets better response from the women too. So it's, he, he seems to be growing here. Uh, the daughters return home, the seven daughters, and uh, they say to Ruel, you know, this Egyptian guy rescued us. I love verse 20. Verse 20 is my favorite verse. Uh, and where is he? Why did you leave him? Right, as, as a man of three daughters, myself, but who's not, they haven't come of age, but, you know, you've got a, a man with seven daughters asking his daughters, why is this man not in my living room right now, right? <laughs> why did you leave him there? Invite him in to have something to eat. And so they do. And uh, Moses stays with them, and we don't know, again, how long this takes, but um, Ruel gives his daughter Zipporah in, in marriage to Moses. So uh, Moses rescues these gals. He ends up marrying one of them. He's shown hospitality by these foreigners, by this priest and his daughters. And then uh, the scene ends, and this is where I'll end our scene, uh, in verse 22, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. Um, Gershom, your notes in your Bible probably say it's, it, it sounds like a foreigner there. So he says, I named my son Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. A name that will be emblematic of this season of life, a foreigner in a foreign, foreign land. So if, um, if who made you ruler and judge is the question of the chapter, I think a foreigner in a foreign land is the, the statement of the chapter. It sums up 
Moses' experience. Think about this. Going from Pharaoh's household, right? 30 years of privilege, power, status, favor. Then going from there to the wilderness of Midian. Anonymity, right? Simplicity, obscurity, a refugee, truly a refugee fleeing, looking for asylum, a foreigner. Um, And then simple family life, uh, simple work, becoming a shepherd. I promise you, as as a guy who was raised in Pharaoh's household, Moses had not learned how to shepherd sheep, right? That That was a job he hadn't planned on. And he is going to shepherd his father-in-law's sheep. That's his occupation for a time. And that ends the early life, I'll say in quotes because you'll find out in a second how not early it was, of Moses. And the next time we see him, uh, he encounters God at the burning bush. We'll look at that next week. All right, so let's, let me just step back, okay? Again, I see this as, as sort of these formative years, these experiences that were shaping Moses into the leader God Uh, wanted him to be. Look at verse 23. It says, during that long period, while Moses was in Midian, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. Anyone know know how long that long period was? 40 years. Okay. Moses is, get this, 80 when God shows up at the burning bush. Okay. This is what Stephen tells us in Acts. He's 80. Those of you who are 75, 80, you haven't even started your ministry yet. Okay, he's 80. Let me, get, let me show you another. Here's, remember we looked at the narrative arc of Exodus? Here's the narrative arc of Moses' life, right? First 40 years, it's all uphill. He's, he's done this pretty epic uh, experience living in Pharaoh's household. And then he has, he kills this guy, he flees, and he's got 40 years. Here, I'll put those up there. 40 years in Midian. Again, obscurity, simplicity, the, 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 the Sinai desert with Raising sheep for 40 years. And then, of course, God will encounter him at the burning bush, and he'll have 40 more years leading Israel out of Egypt and towards the promised land. And so um, we're really looking at that second 40 years today, right? The, the, or we get kind of a little bit of both here. Um, but what I see is God shaping this man. And in a couple ways, you think about those first 80 years really shaped Moses practically in some ways. Like, he grew up in Pharaoh's household. Well, what better Israelite to to lead Israel out of Egypt than someone who knows the way Pharaoh's household works? Like, who can actually step into those moments with familiarity. No one else could have done that the way Moses did, right? And then... He spends 40 years in the wilderness in the exact places where, where Israel is going to wander. I mean, he, he knows Mount Sinai. He spends time. When God meets him at the burning bush, that's at Mount Sinai. This, this is an area that Moses knows. So he's, he's practically really situated for the work that God had called him into. But the main point I want to say this morning is more how I think God was, was shaping him spiritually preparing him so that when he was 80, he was the guy that could do the things that God needed him to do, right? Young man in Egypt, extraordinary guy, passionate, um, physically impressive, I think, strong, zealous, but I would argue probably full of what the New Testament calls the flesh, a sense of uh, self-reliance, a sense of self-importance, a sense of self-sufficient strength. And he learns in Egypt 
that human effort alone cannot produce the fruit that is required, right? He, he learns, I tried it my way. I tried it in my own strength, and it, and it ruined everything. It cost me my, my life, essentially. And then he spends 40 years in the wilderness, humbled, right? Stripped of his self-sufficiency, uh, of his human strength, of, of his sense of self-importance. He learns dependency. He learns uh, exile, actually. He learns exile. We just talked about living as elect exiles. He learns 40 years of exile. And what that means, I think, is that when God meets Moses at the burning bush in chapter 3, he meets a very different man than the one who left Egypt 40 years earlier. I think a humbled man. In fact, ex, uh, or I think it's uh, Numbers calls him the most humble man who ever lived. Um, good evidence Moses himself probably didn't write that verse. Just, well, I think that's safe, <laughs> safe to say. Um, a humbled man, right? Uh, even a reluctant, a, a reluctant leader. But the, the beauty of all of that is then when Moses returns uh, after, after 80 years, comes back to Egypt, he will be asked by the, the Israelite elders essentially the same question. Who made you ruler and judge? And his answer then will be very different. Answer, Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, he made me ruler and judge. He sent me to you. And honestly, I didn't even want the job, right? I, I didn't even want the job, but, but he has sent me to you. He leaves Egypt as I think I would call him the passionate reformer. He returns the reluctant leader in the power of the Spirit in the power of the presence of, of Yahweh who has, has sent him, a bit unsure of himself, um, but actually full of remarkable spiritual power because God is with him. I think of Paul's image uh, in the New Testament that we, we have this treasure in jars of clay, right? We, we, we hold the treasure of the gospel, the beauty of the, the glory of God and the gospel, but we are these these kind of jars of clay. And I, I feel like Moses left Egypt, this powerful jar in his own power, but he returns this kind of cracked, humbled clay jar, but now containing the very power of God going with him. And this is the work of God in his life. And, um, you know, Moses is unique, right? Moses, he's top five, I said. You know, his story is very unique. But um, this is the kind of thing that God does in our lives, Right? This is what he does in his people. He, he leads us through um, times of dependence, times of, oh, that's good. Um, he leads us through Midian experiences, right? He leads us through times of exile, times of wilderness, times of um, brokenness, times of dependence, um, stripping us of our flesh, of our own self-reliant power, in order to, to prepare us so that we can be kind of the vessels that, that are now perfectly suited to do the work, whatever it is he's called us to. Amen? Can you, can you think of times in your life where, you know, he's, he's done that and how he uniquely used Midian experiences to, to prepare you for something or to, to shape you into the person he wants you to be, to humble you? 
um, to move you towards dependence and faithfulness, compassion maybe. I was thinking of other you know, figures in the Bible where God did this. Uh, let me just share two of them. Think of uh, the apostle Peter, okay? He was the, the, the great leader of the early church, the rock of the church. And my sense of Peter, if you've read the Gospels, is that he kind of had that same um, uh, impulsive, self-righteous zeal that uh, Moses exhibits in chapter 2, didn't he? Right, he kind of, he, uh, I think he was prone to some grandiose visions of himself. He had a little overconfidence in his commitment to Jesus, his, and he would just kind of rush into things and go for things. I'm, I'm thinking especially of the before Jesus dies, remember in the, they're in the upper room, and, and Jesus says, you guys, you're all going to, you're all going to just, uh, you know, walk away from me tonight. You're going to be scared. You're going to leave me. And you remember what Peter says? Lord, even if all these guys walk away, I would never walk away from you, right? Sense of confidence in his own faith, his own commitment. And then we know the story. The night goes on. And on three separate occasions, someone says, you know Jesus, and he, he gets scared and his self-protection kicks. He's like, Never, never met the guy. Never heard of him. Never met him. And he experiences great regret and disillusionment with himself. That faith that he thought was so strong and so impressive actually was incredibly weak. And he realized, gosh, I, I don't have the commitment of faith I thought. It was, a, it was a humbling experience, to say the least. It was a shameful experience for him. But then when Jesus is raised, he, he returns to Peter at the, at the uh, Sea of Galilee, and he forgives him, and he, he welcomes him back. And what he does, I think, in that moment is he begins to root Peter's identity in something else, not in his own faithfulness to Jesus, not in his own commitment to Jesus, but in Jesus' forgiveness and grace and love and commitment to him. And he learns humility. He learns dependence. And what's so beautiful is all that passion is still there. Right? He doesn't change that. But now it has been shaped by humility and dependence. And so he goes out and he does just, he's an amazing vessel for God where his natural gifts are still intact, but now it is tempered with humility and dependence. I was thinking of one other, one other example, the Apostle Paul, right? The other great evangelist of the first century. Paul, of course, was an ex-Pharisee, right? So he knew self-righteous zeal like nobody else. Uh, and even after Jesus met him on the Damascus Road and, you know, knocked him off his, his horse figuratively and, and literally and converted him to, to faith, I think pride was always still a temptation for him. Kind of that self-righteous, like, I can do this, right? I've, I've done it better than anybody else. And so, as many of you know, um, God gave him something <laughs> to shape him. He gave him what, what Paul calls a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that was. I assume as some sort of physical condition in his flesh that was painful, that was embarrassing, that was challenging. I mean, here's a guy who would heal people and, you know, raise people from the dead, and he can't even heal himself. And he asks Jesus, take this away. And Jesus says, I'm not going to take this away. And Paul reflects on it. He says, the reason he hasn't done that is because he wants to humble me and teach me dependence. He wants to teach me, and this is what Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you because actually my power is made perfect in your weakness, not in your self-sufficient strength. 
And so that changes Paul's perspective. And he goes, okay, if, well, if that's the case, then when I'm weak, when I'm weak, then I, I'm actually strong. Because that's when I'm actually more available to the power of God in my life. So I'll, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be embarrassed about this thing. I'm going to boast about this thing. I'm going to boast about this thorn in the flesh because it, it gives Jesus an opportunity to, to display his power more often. These are the things that God does in his people's lives. Um, I was thinking, I was reflecting, let me show, share one more story before I close. Um, I was thinking of my own life and, and what, like, what, are, what have been my Midian experiences that have shaped me? And I'm going to share a story. Many of you have heard this, but some of you haven't. If you haven't been here for more than a couple of years, you probably have never heard the story. Um, so let me share my, my Midian uh, story. My Midian story is actually going to seminary uh, at like 22 years old, okay? So a um, little context, uh, grew up here. Went to college in Santa Barbara, and for me, college is really where my faith just came alive, and like really came alive in a really profound way, and just, I feel like God really grabbed a hold of my life in, in that time, and it was a beautiful, lovely, um, amazing spiritual uh, couple of years, and I decided I wanted to go to seminary, and I actually wasn't planning to be a pastor, but I wanted to teach, so I went, I went up to uh, Vancouver, Canada for three years, and uh, I left... Um, I left uh, ready for an adventure, I would say. Like, I was excited. I was going to grow up. I was going to go on an adventure, uh, and it was going to be awesome. I was going to return in the power of the Spirit, you know? And, um, and Canada um, became my Midian, <laughs> turns out. And I went to Vancouver, Canada. Vancouver's a little nicer than the Midian wilderness, so um, <laughs> don't feel too sorry for me. Um, but, but those three years were, um, God used those to just kind of, over three years, slowly just strip me, just pull away the, my sense of pride, my sense of self-reliance, uh, my sense of self-confidence, uh, my, and my own abilities. And so, I'll just, a little background. Growing up, I grew up in Newport Beach, grew up, great family, uh, and um, I feel like the life of a boy came fairly easy to me. Like the big three of, of boys, like school, sports, and friendships, like all of those came fairly easy. I wasn't amazing at any of them, but I, they came pretty easy. So I had this sense like anything's possible. I can kind of, I can do whatever I want, right? Like the sky is the limit. Um, the sense of competency and I can be anything I want to be. And in Canada, um, I hit the fog of the Pacific Northwest. And the fog settled into my heart and soul, and I experienced seasonal affective disorder, and then I became depressed. And, and all the things that kind of worked in my life before stopped working. So I got really lonely. Uh, I'd never been lonely, and I was uh, far away from, you know, friends and family. It was really lonely. Um, I was depressed. I couldn't sleep. Um, and school had always come so easily, and I couldn't focus. Like, in, in getting where I got, I just couldn't focus. I, I can remember sitting in like the library, the school library, um, just to give you like a little glimpse. And I would have like two classes where I, I need to do homework. Like, should I do my homework in Romans or should I do my homework in Greek? What will I do first? And I'd sit there for like an hour. I, I can't decide, should I, should I do Greek right now or should I do Romans? Like that, that kind of just, oh, I can't, I can't cope with things. And, um, and I became just very needy. And which was so hard for me because as a kid, I was always the nice guy that needy people would come to, 
right? And now I was the needy person um, needing a lot of things. And um, I'll never forget my 25th birthday. For some reason, 25 felt like a big number, quarter century. And I can remember where I was. It was a gray day, which it always was up there. I'm sitting on a park bench on my 25th birthday and just feeling I am nothing close to the man I envisioned I would be at 25. Like, there's, there's, I'm so far from that. My other friends were getting married. They had real jobs. You know, like, I was just feeling, ah. Oh. And it was just a humbling season. But I can remember one of the more towards the end of my time there, in the midst of what for me was a low, um, God showing up in that place and saying, I'm still here, Dave. And by the way, I I don't love you any less when you think you're a failure than I did when you thought you were pretty awesome. Like, my feelings about you, my commitment to you is thoroughly unchanged by any of that. And what he started to do for me is start to rebuild my identity, which needed to be not in my gifts or my potential or my competency, but based on the fact that I am his beloved in Christ, based on what Jesus did for me. And I started to rebuild an identity, really not based on anything about myself, but based on who God is for me. And, um, you know, I left for Canada uh, a pretty excited young guy. I, I, you can talk to my parents. I came home uh, a broken, <laughs> humbled um, guy. Uh, and it would take a little bit of time to kind of rebuild some confidence. But, but what was looking back on that, what God did in that time is he actually began to free me. He began to free me from ridiculous expectations that I had put on myself. I mean, if I had tried, just so you know, if I tried to stand up here at 25 and preach to you guys, that sermon would have had to, like, you would have to all be converted and radically change your lives. Like, that, that was the kind of sermon that I would have to be able to preach. It was utterly paralyzing, right, that kind of expectation. And God humbled me of that. He stripped me of that. He taught me, you know, Dave, it's, it's really entirely okay to be normal and ordinary. And you'll be your own unique person. But um, it's really not about how awesome you can be in this world. It's about my love and my grace for you. And there's a humility that began to come from that. Um, And then when it's okay to be normal, it's okay to be just okay, then you can get up and preach a sermon. Doesn't have to be awesome, right? I'm okay. If you guys didn't like today, I walk home like, that's okay. You know, did my best, you know. That's freedom. I mean, that was the work that God was doing. Looking back, it felt like death. Things were dying in me over three years, but I look back now like that was God's great work of freedom, even more so than in college when all the awesome spiritual stuff happened. That's my own little story. Some of you have stories that are so much more dramatic than that. Um, Some of you have stories that are just simple little things, but this is what God is up to in his people, right? He takes us through things. Sometimes it's our own sin. Sometimes it's our own limitations. Sometimes it's hard life circumstances, and he can use those to strip us, not of our gifts, not of our passions, but of our flesh, of our self-reliance, so that we come out more humbled, more compassionate towards others, and more open to just like, God, whatever you want to do with my life, um, this is what, you know, it's yours. We, we, We learn through these experiences, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the great lesson. 
not by my might, not by my power, but by your spirit. And I think that's what Moses learned. And there's great spiritual power in a man or woman who has really amazing gifts, passions, but when that's all combined with humility and a sense of dependence, that is the vessel that God uses in this world. History just plays that out in so many different ways. Okay, that's a lot of story, a lot for me, for me today. Why don't we do this? Why don't we just go to prayer for a second? I want to give you a little bit of space to kind of reflect on your own life and how God um, is doing these things in you or has done these things in you. So if, if you would, why don't we just bow our heads and um, let's go to God for a moment. And I'd just like to address two different scenarios right now. Um, some of you are here and right now, you are going through one of those experiences. You are, you are in the Midian wilderness right now. And life is happening, um, hard things are happening, and, and you are being stripped of things, like your sense of control, your sense of um, self-sufficiency, uh, your sense of pride. And, and you know the circumstances that are kind of, you're, 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 you're having to face into that. And, and I just want to encourage you, have a conversation with the Lord. And, and what my encouragement would be, if you feel yourself fighting that journey, just stop fighting it. Like today can be a day in the midst of challenging circumstances or even your own sin where you say, God, I want to stop fighting this. I want to stop fighting this process. You are at work trying to bring humility and surrender. And today, I, I want to stop fighting you. And I just want to let go and say, Lord, uncle, you, you win. I, I give up. I'm, I'm yours. I, I don't want to keep trying to control this. I don't want to keep trying to protect myself. I surrender to this circumstance, this, this work that I think you're wanting to do in me. And so today can be a day where you, you really do just kind of let go of that tight grasp and go, ah, Lord, take it. Take me. I get it. Some of you um, can look back on seasons where God was doing that. Now, for some of you, those are, those are years ago. Some of you, those are just months ago. Uh, but I encourage you just to reflect back on that. What was God up to? What was he trying to bring about in you? What kind of freedom? What kind of surrender? What kind of obedience? What kind of humility was he working? And how can you be faithful to that, the work he did? How can you be faithful in this season of your life? How has that prepared you to now engage in whatever you know, you're facing right now, whether it's parenting, whether it's marriage, whether it's a, 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 a relational situation, a work situation, but how can you let the work that God did then bear fruit now so that you don't forget it, but you stay in that place of freedom and surrender and dependence and humility and just kind of openness 
to being used by God however he wants to use you? What, what do you, can, you have a, can you have a vision and imagination for in this fresh new season what that might look like for you? Just take a moment to consider that.